Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast Broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772-220-WSTU. And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and Dr. Leanne Talton. Good morning, everyone. This is Paradox, and I'm Dr. Leanne Talton. And I'm Dr. Ira Perlstein. I'm here live in the studio, and also here with us and has been here with us is Frank Mezapel. He is our producer. And Frank, I just want to tell you that you are an important asset to this show. Oh, really? Yes, because I feel like your voice represents the voice of the listener. So oh. it's helpful to us to kind of look at... Yeah, instant feedback. Instant feedback to look okay. at you and treat you like you're one of the listeners on the show. And you guys can't see it out there unless you're YouTubing us, but Frank's giving us hand signals all the time. You know, our biggest fear is not having enough time or having too much time left over. Frank's the guy who keys us up and makes sure that when that fade out music plays at the end of the show, that we end the show on the right note. Oh, there it is. Our first pun of the day. So we're so excited in our studio today is our esteemed guest, Dr. Molly Ryan. Good morning and welcome, Dr. Ryan. Hi, good morning, pair of docs. Oh, good morning. We are so excited that you agreed to speak on our show because I really think that the topic of psychiatry is interesting for most people because I think it's super relatable. I think most people have a family member or have a friend that has been diagnosed with or they're suspicious that even they themselves have a psychiatric illness. Um, I I also think that there's some mystique to psychiatry. Would you not agree with that? Uh, I could agree with that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so cool. And it's like, but people don't admit that they're seeing a psychiatrist. And, and that's always part of that. Yeah. So we don't well. talk about it. And I think that we also have this uh, portrayal of psychiatry as being, we go into this dark room and go sit on a velvet tufted couch and look <laughs> at roar sharks and you, you pull out of us our deepest, darkest childhood memories. Yes. Is, is that what happens? Uh, not quite that, um, <laughs> that way anymore. Um, it certainly was like that probably at some point, but nowadays, uh, psychiatry should be welcoming and open and uh, really uh, comfortable. And and so there's um, a lot of people, my patients at least will say, this was not how I thought this was going to go in I a good it. way. I in a good it. way. Can you joke around what you do? To, like, do you ever like go to the mall and go to Victoria's Secret and say, do you have any Freudian slips or any, anything <laughs> funny like that? Any, that, any good psych that's psychiatric not, jokes? Yeah, like that's not a have, regular practice for you. Is I to, do not know if I have any good psychiatric jokes. I should have uh, prepared better for that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Ira will take care of it. So, so you chose tips. psychiatry, uh, I assume, in medical school, right? Correct. I originally thought I wanted to do OBGYN, but found that psychiatry was much more what I was destined to destined to do. I enjoyed talking with people. I liked educating people. I liked the opportunities that psychiatry can prevent can present for you. You can work with uh, children. You can work with adults. You can work with geriatrics. You can work with um, 
drug companies. You can work with uh, prisoners. You can work in an emergency room. So there's inpatient, consults. Uh, there's so many different opportunities for uh, psychiatry. And it just it just really uh, fit for me. And what, what did your parents say? When you told them you wanted to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> Why aren't you a real doctor? <laughs> I do get that question sometimes, you know, all you do, what do you do all day? Just talk to people. And it's a lot more than that. Obviously we, you know, we are real doctors, swear, we're real doctors who, who have gone through all the medical training, four years of residency, um, even some with specialties. Um, so we, you know, we we are able to to treat patients, prescribe medications, um, and offer therapy as well. Well, to me, psychiatry exemplifies that mind body connection. That the mind yeah. is truly connected to to the body, and our thought processes often dictate our medical illnesses and and how we feel. Certainly, we've all seen. I mean, I would say that in primary care, you know, we we think. Do you think that we treat a lot of psychiatric illness just in in primary care before they even get to you? I see that a lot. I so, see that a lot. So pay, people are always uh, underestimating the degree that uh, stress and you know personal turmoil affect the rest of their body. And so it's like you know sometimes I have to say to people like, do, do you not agree that what you're going through is traumatic and that your body is going to respond accordingly? And they're they're surprised to give it that much uh, you know weight. Right. Yeah. I generally try and say like, you know, okay, well, whatever you've been doing right now, how has that been going for you? And generally it hasn't been going so well. Some people those have have again that sort of stigma or hesitation to to quote unquote see a shrink or to take a pill every day that's going to be mind altering or that these pills are going to change who I am or I'm going to be a zombie. But in reality, medications have come a long way. Um, you know, finding the right combination at the right doses to just make you a better you uh, is really our goal. So, you know, I think that probably the bread and butter of uh, at least you know, my world of mental health is depression. And, you know, when I, whenever I'm talking to patients about depression, they, sometimes they'll interrupt me and say, well, you know, I don't really feel depressed. I feel like it's more anxious. And I say, well, I just kind of group those together in a way because it's all very similar brain chemicals doing that. So would you say depression is your bread and butter? Probably. Most people will come in with some type of symptom of depression, even if it's not doesn't meet criteria for like a major depressive disorder. Any of those symptoms we can find just with daily life, feeling stressed, overwhelmed, not sleeping well, can't concentrate, don't feel like I want to leave the house sometimes, weight changes, um, loss of energy, fatigue, feeling hopeless or helpless or worthless. All those things can be, you know, some form of depression. Um, and anxiety really goes along with that. I, I talk to patients a lot about that where, you know, if you're depressed and you're so you might feel anxious that you're not going to get better or if you have solely anxiety, but you can't leave the house and that makes you feel depressed. So our medications are generally thought um, are generally can treat both of those things because they do use very similar receptors in your brain. So, so where do you draw the line? Because there seems to be a fine line between having normal reactions because sure. you can't be happy all the time. No. And most people will experience some depression at some point in their lives. Yes. When do you make the distinction of this is just an adjustment 
disorder, you're going through a normal grief reaction or a normal period of sadness because of a move, because of a, a, an emotional loss, as, as opposed to this person needs to be medicated. Right. Uh, when, so certainly that's absolutely right. You know, a, a pill cannot fix everything, you know, a, a pill cannot help, you know, make your divorce not happen. A pill cannot, um, you know, change some of those things. So, uh, really when it becomes detrimental to your life where it's, um, it's really hindering your daily activities, um, or taking care of yourself or your ability to take care of others or go to work, that's when medications can really step in. Um, therapy can also be extremely beneficial for more of those, uh, adjustment type things where medication might not necessarily be, be necessary, but still needing that guidance because um, of those feelings that just feel so dysregulated. And you and you mentioned the word therapy, and there are lots of different types of therapy. Correct. You know, and, and when most people think of therapy, they think of the old Sigmund Freud sitting there with a pen, <laughs> uh, stroking his beard and saying, tell me about your childhood. Right? But what's therapy like now? And what type of therapy do you actually provide for your patients? There are a bunch of different types of therapy options, uh, depending on what type of symptoms people come in with. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is very helpful for anxiety. Dialectical behavior therapy is good for people with borderline personality disorder who need to help regulate their interpersonal relationships. Uh, sometimes even just brief supportive psychotherapy, so someone just feels heard, uh, are great. We can do couples counseling. We can do family counseling. Um, there are lots of different um, types of people who do uh, therapy as well. Licensed psychologists, clinical social workers, uh, licensed mental health counselors. So, uh, so finding somebody who really connects with you, who can really address the specific symptoms that you are having, um, and and then ultimately uh, be beneficial for for you. Like I said, with that connection, I think is the biggest uh, uh, thing that you need to look for to advocate for. So, so you mentioned now a couple of different. Uh, training levels, people that do therapy, therapist is what we would call them, or psychologist is another degree. But can you explain to the listener, what it, what does a psychiatrist do versus a psychologist or a therapist? Yes. So psych And people sometimes often get that confused. Psychiatrist is a medical doctor who has gone to medical school and done residency training. For We did four years of med school, four years of residency training. Some have specialized in fellowships for one or two years after. After, we are able to prescribe medications um, and we additionally then can do diagnosing and uh, and therapy as well. We are also the the doctors who would do uh, ECT or um, NMS or some other types of procedures as well. Um, whereas psychologists do not at this point in time have the ability to uh, prescribe medications. Theirs is mainly therapy or doing uh, neuropsychological testing, such as uh, personality testing, IQ testing, a lot of um, uh, some of those things to help us 
help us uh, both narrow down on a diagnosis if there's some confusion. So, you know, I will say that as a primary care doctor, sometimes I think patients are disappointed when I tell them that I need the help of a psychiatrist because it's another person, you know, typically people that need a psychiatrist are already in some kind of distress. And so to have to rehash that with a new person, they're very disappointed when I say I need to outsource. But can you tell the listener what a psychiatrist can do to help a primary care physician or any physician manage a patient? In other words, what patients do we need help managing? What do you do? What do you specialize in that is better than or, you know, more experienced than what I do? Collaboratively. Right, right. I mean, I I can't tell you how much I appreciate the family med docs who who do have to take this on. We have such a lack of uh, psychiatrists, especially in this area and world, you know, worldwide or countrywide, that that we do need that extra help. Uh, getting a really good a good history and a good diagnosis is very helpful. That's why psychiatrists will spend. Um, you know, our entire session talking simply about the mental, you know, your mental health, where, whereas family medicine has a lot of other jobs they need to address too. So getting that, that really good history. So we know whether it isn't a, a type of bipolar disorder that that's right now looking like depression, or if really that anxiety is more related to a history of trauma that, you know, they didn't necessarily want to disclose or whether there's substance use that's also uh, hindering, you know, a clear diagnosis. All of those things will will really be addressed by the psychiatrist at length uh, in a session um, to to really focus down and narrow down the the specific medications that can help. And then we know more about newer things that are coming out or side effects or interactions. You know, that's our main um, our main treatment and our main trainings uh, have been related to all of those things. Okay, well, you know, there's such a need for mental health, particularly in this area. And it's yes. very hard to get in to see either a mental health counselor, uh, an MSW, Masters of uh, Social Work, uh, psychologist, psychiatrist. It could be months out before my patients come in. And statistics show that about 20% of the population, one in five, has some type of mental health issue. And I call it mental health, even though, and, and that might be a misnomer, some type of, let's say, emotional crisis that requires more than just seeing a family doctor. But yet, over 80% of medications for psychiatric illness are prescribed by primary care doctors. Yeah. Do you feel as a psychiatrist that when you see someone who comes to you from a family doctor, an internist, a primary care doctor, that those primary care doctors have a tendency to undertreat? Uh, possibly. I, I think they're hesitant to know what is the right medication if there's something that's newer out there. Um, sometimes they don't want to overstep, you know, on psychiatry toes and we feel the same as you know, as well um so but i do think just collaboration is is really important um in all of different uh treatment options you know in different doctors that people see because nowadays especially too is you know as we get older we see a lot of doctors yeah so you know you've helped me out a lot with collaborating on mutual patients and Absolutely. one of the things that i see you doing often is raising the dose of my ssri and for all of you listening 
can you tell us a little bit about what an SSRI is and then why it is that you think people should usually be on higher doses than they're on when they get to you? And is that the best thing to start on? It might not be. It might not be. It depends. It Again, the, that history is going to be really important. Uh, SSRIs are our selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which basically means uh, it's going to help serotonin, which makes you feel better, get to where it needs to go. So these are like Prozac, right? Prozac, Lexapro, Zoloft, Paxil, uh, Selexa. Those are our main uh, SSRIs. They they have been tried and true. They've been around for um, quite a number of years. They are excellent medications in treating depression and anxiety, but there are some limitations to those. Someone with bipolar who may may not um, have realized that diagnosis and is prescribed a an antidepressant can sometimes be activated uh, up into more of a hypomanic state. Um, sometimes the black box warnings on the SSRIs can uh, can make some patients feel worse better rather than better. Um, so a lot of those things we really have to um, have to be concerned about when we're picking or choosing an antidepressant. If you've just tuned in, I'm Dr. Ira Perlstein with my co-host, Dr. Leanne Talton, and our show today is shrink-wrapped, and we're with esteemed psychiatrist, Dr. Molly Ryan, who's talking about depression and uh, depressive-related illnesses, and I believe we have a caller. Are you ready to take a call, Dr. Ryan? Yeah, sure. All right. Go ahead, caller. Good morning, everybody. This is Alan. My uh, question for Dr. Ryan is, when I was a... Uh, young person uh, in grade school and high school, I never had to worry about possibly getting injured by a shooter coming into uh, uh, the school. At, uh, at that point, there were mental hospitals. Uh, people were evaluated, institutionalized. But now it seems that you just were talking a lot about the medications and people are getting medications and going out on the street. And I'm a former prosecutor from Milwaukee, and it really concerns me about the release of people who can get these high-powered rifles and do tremendous carnage. What is your thoughts on this? So obviously this is a very sensitive topic. Um uh, with over the past few years that have been brought up. Certainly, just because you may have a mental illness does not mean that you will be violent. Uh, it is important to get early intervention and early treatment if someone does have a mental illness, but that does not explain away any actions that are um, so extreme. Um, you know, we see a lot of people who are very ill that are not violent. Generally, people with mental illness are more victims of uh, violence towards them than um, than others. So, um, in in regards to gun control, that's you know that's um, definitely a totally different issue um, in regards to mental health. But uh, but no, I mean, I think it is a really sensitive topic, and we do need uh, doctors there who can be helping not you know, either preventative again and then in the aftermath as well. Do you think that uh, part of the solution is possibly to have certain uh, 
mental hospitals in the country that people would be, uh, in essence, institutionalized for a while and receive care and be evaluated more closely. Thank you so much for your call, Alan. I'm going to let Dr. Dr. Ryan answer this, and, she, and she's going to take it from here. But I want to thank you for your participation so much and encourage other listeners to call in with questions like his. We really appreciate the audience participation. Right, and remember, our call-in number is 772-220-WSTU. That's 772-220-9788. You're listening to Paradox with our guest today, Dr. Molly Ryan, psychiatrist. And this is such a good question from from Alan, our listener, because Dr. Molly actually has some experience with correctional medicine specifically. So you can answer his question with the listeners knowing that you are the right person to talk about institutional medicine. <laughs> yes. So uh, during my training, I'm a, an osteopathic physician, as is Dr. Charlton. Uh, so we uh, we have a little bit extra training in rural medicine and um, and uh, underserved populations. So I, during my medical school, I did some training at a correctional facility. I worked, uh, I had my master's in public health as well. So I worked in uh, South Africa for, for a bit. Um, and I also was able to work at South Florida State Hospital for a few months um, where we still, we do still have state hospitals uh, in Florida. There are at least, I believe, five or more um, state hospitals that are long-term psychiatric uh, care facilities. I also recently was working at a forensic facility, which means um, a place that deals with psychiatry and the law. So we would receive um, individuals, may, adult male individuals who have been accused of committing a felony, uh, but were found incompetent to proceed by a judge, and they were sent to us to uh, help with um getting them competent through education and medications. So uh, so I do find that that I I enjoy the correctional uh, aspect. I think it's fascinating to work with uh, psychiatry and the law and, and underserved populations who are generally uh, overlooked or um, uh, felt maybe not as uh, needy for the um, for the treatments that we that they need. Well th that, that's a great answer. And, and the answer to Alan's question about, um, you know, these these people that maybe ha are at risk to, to commit crimes and whether or not the number of institutions in the state is relevant to the number of mass shootings. How do you, I mean, do you feel like that's a topic or? I mean, I don't know that that's the answer. Um, you know, we've it feels kind of like uh, that movie with Tom Cruise and. Uh, minority report, kind of minority report that we can't, you know, we can, certainly can't predict the future. We are uh, not able to do that. I cannot read people's minds, even though some people sometimes think I can. Um, I, I, I assure you, I cannot read your mind. Uh, but but we do, we do, you know, have some people who are incapable of of functioning um, without assistance and need a, you know, a long-term facility to help with medication compliance or um, help with outbursts. Um, but our goal really is to have people be functioning and, and more independent and, um, and, and try and be productive members of society if they can. Well, That's our main goal. Thank you. But Molly, this is what bothers me that despite the, 
advances in medications, the SSRIs, the SNRIs, the older meds, the tricyclic anti, the tricyclic antidepressants, there's still such a stigma in depression. And most people won't admit to needing help. And this might be one of the reasons why. A little history, a little history, if I may. May I indulge Please, myself? You may. Uh, you thank may. you. Because you know I was going to do it anyway, <laughs> right, right? Right, right. Okay. So I'm going to indulge myself. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln won the presidency. And it was commented how morose and how sad he was because he probably suffered from depression. Of course, there was no treatment back then. And had there been, and had we had the media that we have today, he probably would have never gotten elected. And wow, would that have changed history? But history tends to repeat itself. And in 1972, uh, the election was won by Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew. And it was a landslide victory against the Democratic candidates, which were George McGovern and Sergeant Shriver. Sergeant Shriver, by the way, was Eunice Kennedy's husband. So he's the brother-in-law of John Kennedy. But Sergeant Shriver was not the original vice presidential candidate. The original vice presidential candidate was a gentleman by the name of Thomas Eagleton. And Thomas Eagleton had actually been chosen as the Democratic running mate to run against George McGovern. And the Democratic Party withdrew his name because he was being treated for bipolar illness and said that he was not a suitable candidate. Mm -hmm. Come forward to today, 2019. And when I go and fill out forms to renew my privileges at a hospital, and I just renewed uh, my malpractice insurance with a new malpractice carrier, that haunting question is there. Have I ever been treated for mental illness? It doesn't ask me if I've ever had surgery. It doesn't ask me if I'm on cholesterol or high blood pressure medication. But that stigma remains, and that shouldn't be there. And I think that prevents a lot of people from seeking help for depression. I completely agree. I completely agree. I get a lot of people who will come in and say, you know, my insurance will never uh, get these records right if I if I, uh, you know, don't use my insurance to help pay for this. Um, you know, this is what's the confidentiality? What do you have to report? Um, what's mandated reporting? I mean, it is. It's still we still do look down on it. It's it has certainly come a long way. A lot of celebrities come out now with different diagnoses and and showing us their treatment and what they go through. And um, and so it is, you know, certainly more prevalent uh, in our media. But I don't think that has uh, that has really shown through in um, in people still seeking help uh, who would need it. Yeah. And you know, um, this is a little bit of a segue. It doesn't relate to exactly what you were saying, but you told me recently, Molly, about a study that had discussed antidepressant use in uh, mothers during pregnancy. And the outcome of that was... Yeah. So in Europe, uh, they studied over like 179,000 children who were exposed to antidepressants in in utero, you know, while they're still uh, in the mother's belly and found that 12 years out from delivery, these children did not have any differences in intellectual functioning than um than those who were not exposed to to antidepressants in pregnancy. So we do know that that 
keeping the mother stable on her medications as long as they are not adversely affecting the fetus. You know, we do have some that are uh, much better to use than others um, uh, is is important. But but keeping, you know, them calm and and level is is going to be the best benefit for for the baby. So in other words, you know, there I I suppose. I don't know if this has been studied. I'm sure it's been studied in some way, but in other words, to prevent, to, to not treat depression, worrying about a stigma is, is very likely to have deleterious effects on entire families. And we've proven, at least in this study, that children are not negatively affected by their mom using antidepressants. Certainly it stands to reason that their life is better with a happier parent. So there's lots of reasons to be diagnosed and treated appropriately and, uh, all of us have to do our part in preventing these stigmas from being uh, continued in society. Yeah. Most people will say, I wish I had come for help sooner. Yeah. We're with psychiatrist, Dr. Molly Ryan. We need to take a commercial break and we're going to see you back in about a minute. And if you're just joining us, this is Paradox. I'm Dr. Ira Perlstein with my co-host, Dr. Leanne Talton. And this morning, we're talking to psychiatrist, Dr. Molly Ryan. We're talking about depression and anxiety and the need to seek treatment and the importance of that treatment. And I have a question for you on, on depression, Dr. Ryan. I see a lot of older pa patients in my practice and I do a suicide assessment. I usually do what we call a PHQ, a patient health questionnaire, the two question form. Uh, and if they fail that, then I go to a patient health questionnaire with nine questions about depression called a PHQ-9. I use it as part of my standard annual exam and periodically when I think it's needed. But I've often felt that older individuals are more vulnerable to suicide because 
people can handle psychological stressors, but as they age, they can usually handle one psychological stress stressor. But when these stressors start piling up, for instance, death of a spouse, death of a close friend, medical illness, financial strain, recent move, move to an ACLS, you, you get the picture. It just keeps piling up so it's a snowball effect. How much more vulnerable is this type of patient wanting to end it all than a younger person you might see for depression? And make the listeners aware of when you think they need to seek help with either someone like myself, Dr. Talton, or a really good psychiatrist like yourself. Yeah, suicide is definitely a, a, a tricky, touchy subject. Um, uh, the feelings of wanting to hurt yourself or wanting to die can come out of nowhere. Even if someone does not want to die, those thoughts during depression can be so extreme that it feels like um, it's you know it would be easier or people would be better off without me. I'm a burden. I hear a lot of these these things. Uh, but knowing that depression is treatable and that this can get better uh, are 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 kind of main main goals in in addressing suicide. Um, whether so, things to look at when when people may be feeling suicidal. They're giving away um, personal belongings. They may have written notes. They may um, you know be posting some things online. Maybe feeling lonely. Like you said, a lot of times there's uh, situational things that have occurred: accidents, uh, aging, uh, death in the family member. Um, Any time where where it feels like you know, there's these big life changes, retirement even, uh, or losing your job. But these things can be very triggering and they are um, upsetting. We, I talk a lot with my patients about kind of what's the quote unquote new normal, you know, so, so it is adapting to, to a different type of lifestyle, maybe disabilities, things like that. You're kind of losing some of your, um, independence and those things are hard. They're very hard to deal with. So, so, but understanding that, you know, certainly suicide is is not not necessarily the answer to these um to these sort of temporary problems that can be worked around um there's different ways to do it there are physical therapy there's volunteering there are um a lot of different options and treatments that can um can help you feel better and i think that's the biggest goal is that this does not um last forever it should not last forever so um, those are things to look at if you feel like you want to hurt yourself in any way or feel like you want to hurt somebody else. I mean, there are this uh, psychiatric hospitals, acute care, you know, centers that can um, help you that are short term stays, you know, voluntary or, or involuntary if needed um, and getting you, you know, quick, quick help to to get you on a, a medication or, or something that will will help you with those those really negative thoughts. You are so engaging and so easy to talk to. I can see why you're a psychiatrist. <laughs> Thank you. You do kind of have to love the job. You know, it can be heavy some days and, um, you know, when you, when you bring it all home, but, uh, but, uh, but I do, I love, I love my job. I love. So I let love our patients. listeners know, or, or, or tell our listeners, particularly listeners, families of someone that they might have at home who they're a little bit worried about. What are the warning signs that 
they should be able to pick up in their family members where they may want to call someone like myself or Dr. Talton or someone like you. Sure. And sometimes it may, it may be very subtle, but a lot of the times people do have really good um, ways of noticing something's just off. Um, maybe they haven't showered in a few days. They used to really enjoy going out to the beach, but they haven't been in a couple, a couple weeks. Um, uh, they're not maybe eating quite as much as they used to. They're staying in bed a whole lot more. Um, a lot of those things can be, you know, kind of some early signs of depression or later signs of depression as well. Um, on the flip side, if someone is becoming uh, manic or hypomanic with a bipolar disorder, they start to talk really fast. They're um, spending a bunch of money they don't have or making risky decisions. They they don't need sleep and they've been staying up for days. Um, and those also can become detrimental and um, impairing to life. So anything that seems off, uh, you know, certainly we want to rule out uh, any um, concurrent drug use or, or extreme alcohol use as well. So, um, a lot of things kind of make up a person's personality and the way that they're acting. And so, um, having supportive family members is really, 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 really helpful for the patient. So you just mentioned bipolar disorder, and we've also mentioned bipolar disorder at other points in this show. And I think that that is a diagnosis that is super tricky and certainly, uh, can alter a family, um, can alter, certainly alter the life of the individual with bipolar disorder. But for those of us that don't really know what that means, and I know you've also mentioned that you don't like that uh, society tends to use the word bipolar really flippantly, uh, as well as other, you know, psychiatric terms really flippantly. Can you tell us what is it? What is bipolar disorder? Sure. I mean, a lot of, and again, a lot of those words we do kind of throw around, you know, oh, he's, um, he's so schizophrenic or, uh, oh, you're, you're so antisocial or you're bipolar. You know, we use them a lot and really without correctly you using them in with a diagnosis part um bipolar disorder is um is um is a diagnosis that can have um times of extremely elevated uh, mood um mania mania or even hypomania which is a little less um less so so bipolar has kind of two two different types of diagnosis bipolar 1 uh, or bipolar 2 they can become um very paranoid they are like I said, are doing risky uh, behaviors, maybe um, sexually acting out, excessive spending. They are needing a lack of sleep, so they're not sleeping for hours and hours at a time. They're very impulsive. They make poor choices. They might have racing thoughts. It might be kind of difficult to follow them. Usually, when you're talking to someone who's um, um, manic um, in a manic state, it's it's almost exhausting to try and and follow the conversation or to listen to them. And you find yourself literally being fatigued and overwhelmed with just the amount of information and energy that, that comes out of these people. But the people kind of in general sort of like that feeling of euphoria. It's a lot better feeling than depression. However, um, that's generally unsustainable. It is often detrimental once they um, kind of come down from from these euphoric states to to recognize, whoa, now I'm in, in debt and I've lost a few friends and um, I don't know where my car is. You know, and, and you're and a lot of those things. It's yeah, you're tough. saying that you're saying that making the diagnosis of bipolar disorder is important because uh, you the treatment is different. 
Correct. Treatment is very different. Um, and as I mentioned, if we kind of misdiagnose as a depression, sometimes those medications can almost be harmful for treating um, a bipolar patient. So you want to be sure that you can get a correct mood stabilizer on board. What are those? Can you give me an example? Uh, sure. We have uh, lots of different types of mood stabilizers and some are often used as um, anti-seizure medications as well. Depoco, we have um, Tegretol, Trileptol, Lithium, um, some newer atypical antipsychotics are also used as mood stabilizers. Abilify, um, Vralar, Seroquel. Um, so all these medications can be, can be helpful in treating those moods. Some are better for the ups, some are better for the downs. That, that's great. And, and my understanding with bipolar illness is you want to control the mania before you control the depression because putting patients on antidepressants first can actually worsen the mania. Is that correct? Correct. You can flip them up and activate them a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about you. We want to learn about you, okay? Good, trans no, good no, transition not, there. Not whether Thanks. or not, not whether or not you're on these medications, because you seem pretty normal here talking, and you're so easy to talk to, and Thank and I hope you. patients can and and listeners can pick up on how easy it is to talk to you, and you definitely chose the right career path. Thanks. Where did you train? Uh, so I did my medical, I did my undergrad actually at Oberlin College in Ohio. Are you from Ohio? I'm from Ohio. I majored in art history, which was, <laughs> which was fun. Um, you think the Mona Lisa was the press? Right? I know. Uh, she looks depressed. Uh, maybe. Okay. And, and, uh, and then I decided I wanted to be the doctor. I'm the first doctor in my family. So I did a lot of prerequisites in summer schools and then, um, and, uh, took the MCATs. It's a it's a big process. Then I did my uh, med school down at Nova Southeastern in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, my husband was concurrently in dental school. Yeah, let's talk time. about him. Who's your husband? Yeah, who is he? <laughs> uh, so my husband is uh, Dr. Jordan Kaltman. He works with um, uh, Oral Facial Surgical Associates here in town. That's how we moved to Stewart about four and a half years ago. So he is an now. OMFS. Correct. Which is a? Oral Maxillofacial Surgeon. So what does he do? He puts pieces people's faces back together. He uh, pulls teeth, those implants. I was trying really hard to think of an, <laughs> of an Ira style joke about it's like exact. whether whether Jordan needs his head examined by Molly for no, wanting to well, look at people's mouths all day. Well, right? no, I, I mean oral surgeons are down in the mouth, but I mean she did the right thing. Listen, she she majored in art history. He puts patients. <laughs> faces back together oh, I so get it. the whole picasso the oh, whole art history yeah, the yeah, whole yeah, yeah. i mean it's coming full circle now yeah, totally and you have some kitties we do have we have three kids at the moment six four and two a first grader this year uh and a vp care and a little two-year-old who's awesome at the moment oh. so you know, at the moment. jordan we have something to tell you <laughs> do you have something to tell us no no okay no. No, at the moment. And how long have you and been here? And a dog and three cats. How long have you been here in Stewart? Stewart, now, I, I want to say four and a half years I is about right. Almost five. Do you have hobbies, Molly? Uh, yeah, I enjoy bird watching. Um, <laughs> we, we do like those little... big dinosaur birds that <laughs> hang out. 
down here at the big. I like to tease my kids that there's pterodactyls around, but they don't buy it anymore. Um, no bird watching. My dad got me into bird watching when I was little. Uh, so I enjoy, I enjoy that kind of the outdoors. It's so hot though in Florida it makes it a little more tricky. Um, sports and we have a couple. So Tal uh, Dr. Talton and I are part of a, a physician moms group and we have a couple running buddies that do uh, some races around town and, and things like that. So we're enjoying um, just exercising, running. I love my Peloton. <laughs> Shout out for Peloton. <laughs> that's an exercise. That's a bike. It's a bike, a stationary bike. But yeah. Watch videos. Yeah. I, you know, I'm probably the only guy who thought Pilates was a Greek food. <laughs> okay. I, it just, when my wife said, I'm going, I'm going to Pilates. I'm like, well, I'm not sure I want Greek for dinner tonight. <laughs> Ew, so, so, but I've learned. I, I, I'm at the gym now four or five times a week. There I'm getting you back go. in shape. Nice. Good for you. I was making the rest of us jealous with his weight loss. Yeah. Yeah. How, how, many, board. how much have you lost? I've lost about 42 pounds. Just, just 42 pounds, folks. Just 42 pounds. <laughs> and like, but he's real sneaky about it. Like, like you'll say, you know, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, nothing. But I do have to stop by the tailors to get something taken in. Like, <laughs> the women in his so life want to kill him. Like, they're <laughs> so, so over it. No, it's it's just the discipline. And there's probably a psychiatric problem there somewhere. We're we're not going <laughs> to go into I that today. Of, we're not talking uh, about manorexia I have today. Lots of yeah, different uh, questions yeah. for you a little later. I do love Stewart. It's small and cozy. The traffic is great compared to, you know, Fort Lauderdale, Miami. I did my training. Oh, so I did my training for four years at Jackson Miami Hospital um, down south at the VA down there, University of Miami. So um, that's where I did my psychiatry training after med school. So that's mm -hmm. where I come from. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Paradox. I'm Dr. Ira Perlstein, my co-host, Dr. Leanne Talton. We're talking to local psychiatrist, Dr. Molly Ryan. We're talking about depression. And now we're going to be talking a little bit about anxiety. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that's something that pretty much everybody has experience with. Yes. Um, and so, you know, we, we discussed earlier that a lot of anxiety these days is treated with the same medicine that we use to treat depression. Those are the SSRIs. Again, I kind of feel like people are disappointed in that answer because you don't have anxiety all the time. You just have it sometimes. So why doc, are you making me take something every day? Aren't I going to become stuck on it? What does an SSRI like Prozac, Lexapro, Selexa, what does that do for anxiety? How does that help? Yeah. The term antidepressant is definitely a misnomer. You know, people say, well, I'm not depressed though. Um, so really I just, the name itself uh, doesn't really lead to exactly what they can treat. Um, depression and anxiety are so closely related, as we talked about earlier in the show, um, with just, um, you know, the way that they kind of follow each other. Um, so so how I like to look at it is, you know, an antidepressant can sort of keep that anxiety from bubbling up, whereas an as-needed medication or, or PRN, as we call them, um, more helps to kind of squash the anxiety that has already broken through. Um, for me, I feel like not feeling the anxiety feeling at all would be a, a more um, comfortable way to go about. But uh, some people do have that that sort of uh, hinge with having to take a daily medication every day that they still feel like is only made for depression. If you ask the public, they'll tell you that the biggest crisis we have in this country drug-wise are opioids narcotics but 
It's really benzodiazepines, Valiums, Ativans, Lorazepam. Xanax. Xanax. Everybody <laughs> wants it. Tell us a little bit about how hard they are to get off of and the dangers of putting patients on those drugs on a continual basis. Yeah. So, so I do believe that benzodiazepines have their place in, in treatment. You know, they can be very effective in treating anxiety, especially if you're bridging or starting a new medication that does take time to kick in. Um, but they do come with their risks. You can build up tolerance. You can have withdrawals, including seizures. They do not mix well with alcohol. Um, uh, they uh, can be a very addicting type of medication where you feel like you'll need more and more um so and they're controlled right they are controlled substances just as well as them stimulants are as well uh for like adult adhd or adhd in children a lot of them do have that kind of concern of of abuse or misuse um so so they are really well regulated and we want to you know, make sure that they're used um, with caution, especially in elderly who who may have um, some cognitive clouding associated with the benzos or over sedation that they fall, you know, can cause falls and things. Um, so so they have their place, but but with caution for sure. And what do you think about Buspero? Buspar. So Buspar is a, it's really underused medication. It is a, a beautiful little medication with literally no side effects, um, uh, no interactions. However, I found that people either love it or they feel like it's water, you know, or placebo. So, so really, um, we should be using it more often, but it's sort of, uh, you know, kind of thought to be, eh, is it, is it really going to be that worthwhile, you know, to bother with it? And so you would say that it, you know, in addition to medications to treat anxiety, there's also probably a role for therapy and behavioral therapy. A hundred percent, hundred percent. Studies have shown not time and time again, that medications plus therapy is going to give you the best outcomes. And so, and I, and I have used some different practitioners in town that have kind of uh, scientific you know, machines and whatnot for helping to reduce ang anxiety is that it's, it's interesting. It's like electro stip, you know, eyeball stuff. Yes. Like, what is that? What is yep. that? And, and they could do it at home on their computers. Yeah. Tapping and, and, and to some people can even do telepsychiatry, you know, you can find a provider even in the comfort of your home who can do therapy or medication management. Telepsychiatry is a, you know, a kind of blooming, um, uh, way of practicing psychiatry so you can get to um, places that don't necessarily have enough doctors. Um, but yeah, we have a lot of different different uh, modalities that are still coming out. Ketamine infusions are now a new um, big thing. They just um, approved something, an IV drug for postpartum depression um, that can be used. So, so a lot of different new things are always on the horizon and um, psychiatry is just really, really fascinating. So if one of our listeners wants to see you, tell us how they can do that. Sure, absolutely. We I, I'm accepting new uh, patients at this time. Uh, I we have a website, stuartpsychiatry.com, or the office number is 772-208-0514. So for those of you who are listening today, our episode was called Shrink Wrap. 
And by the way, that that's all. All these episode titles are all from Dr. Ira and his <laughs> pun good. factory. It's a good one. And um, and we've really enjoyed having Dr. Molly Ryan. She kind of dispelled some myths about depression and treatment. She talked about anxiety. We loved having you on the show. Thank you Thank so you much, guys. I really appreciated it. And come tune in again next week for more of Period. What's our show next week? I don't know. You got to stay tuned. You got to stay tuned. All right. See you next week.